Today, three more burning questions about ketamine and esketamine and the new research that attempts to answer them. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psych NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Ketamine and esketamine treat depression, but they leave a lot of questions unanswered. And last week, we covered three of them. How does it compare to quetiapine? It works a little better. How does it compare to ECT? Depends on the setting. We're seeing better responses to ECT in hospitalized and psychotic depression, and better responses to ketamine in outpatient depression. And how effective is it? That depends on which placebo you compare it to. Compared to intravenous saline, the effect is huge. But when compared to an intravenous benzo, it's a lot smaller, but still in the respectable large range. And that brings us to question four. Which version is more effective, ketamine or esketamine? Let's start with animal models. In animal models, there was some suggestion at first that the R-ketamine, the R-enantiomer, had stronger antidepressant effects than S-ketamine, the one that got FDA approved. But, you know, then I saw studies showing the opposite, so it's just not clear. Besides being different enantiomers, they also have different routes of delivery. Ketamine is IV and S-ketamine intranasal. On that alone, I'd expect more responses with the more direct IV route. Okay, so far we've got some theory favoring ketamine, but let's look at the clinical data, looking at meta-analyses that compare the two drugs not head-to-head, not directly, but comparing the effect size in their various studies. Here, ketamine scores much bigger with larger effect sizes around 0.7 to 1.7, while S-ketamine rings in at 0.3. And that 0.3 is not including a recent industry-sponsored controlled trial from China where S-ketamine did not work at all. Big surprise. But these kinds of studies are not exactly comparing apples to apples. I mean, we tend to see smaller effect sizes in large, rigorous industry-sponsored trials like the S-ketamine ones, and bigger effect sizes in the smaller independent trials that made ketamine famous. So these indirect comparisons are not exactly conclusive. And I will add this. You'll remember that ketamine has a much bigger effect when it's compared to saline intravenous. Well, in the S-ketamine studies, they used intranasal saline to compare it. So that's not the reason that its effect size is small. It's not because it was compared to a benzo. It was fairly compared to an inert saline intranasal spray. Were the two ever compared head-to-head in the same trial? I know of two small trials that did just that. And in both of them, the two treatments came up equal. One of them looked at acute antidepressant effects and the other at acute anti-suicidal effects. The bottom line, ketamine might be more effective than esketamine, but we can't say for sure. In practical terms, both have their downsides. Ketamine requires IV delivery, and esketamine is brand-only and very expensive. During the pandemic, some companies sprouted up dispensing compounded 
oral ketamine for depression. But last month, the FDA issued a warning against that practice. If you want to learn more about the problems with oral at-home ketamine, scroll back to our February 26, 2023 episode, Ketamine Comes Home, which is based on investigative reporting from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. The details they uncovered are a lot more shocking than the tepid proclamation from the FDA. The FDA's October statement focuses on the fact that oral ketamine is being used off-label without their approval, as if off-label use is some kind of rarity in medicine. At the end, the FDA paper briefly mentions that there have been reports of, quote, misuse, psychiatric events, increases in blood pressure, respiratory depression, and lower urinary tract and bladder symptoms. The warnings they put on antidepressants and benzos sound scarier than that jargony babble. The actual details, which the FDA strangely whitewashed there, are much more concerning than urinary symptoms. Here's what happened. A 50-year-old man now has to use a catheter to empty his bladder. A 37-year-old woman who wears adult diapers because of at-home ketamine. And all the while, they both kept taking ketamine without telling their doctors about the side effects because they didn't want it taken away. Let's pause for a preview of the CME for this episode. Earn CME through the link in the show notes. One. What did two recent studies of weight gain on lithium conclude? A. Lithium is associated with rare cases of severe weight gain, but on average does not cause any. B. Lithium causes initial weight gain, but not long-term weight gain. C. There was a trend toward weight gain on lithium, but it was not statistically significant. D. Lithium causes clear weight gain, but less than that of an antipsychotic. And now for question five. Whether you use esketamine or ketamine, how do you sustain the drug's benefits? If we ask the manufacturer of esketamine, we're pretty sure the answer is going to be more esketamine. And yep, here it is. The SUSTAIN trial. This trial randomized patients who recovered on esketamine to continue with either long-term esketamine maintenance at a reduced frequency, every one to two weeks instead of twice a week, or switch to placebo for about a year. The esketamine group did better, and no new safety concerns rose to the surface. That study is a few years old, and this year, a secondary analysis of SUSTAIN-1 provided more reassurance that esketamine does not wear off. Part of the SUSTAIN protocol was that it allowed rescue treatments for patients who slipped into depression during the long haul of the trial. Both the placebo group and the esketamine group could receive rescue therapy also known as a second induction. In the esketamine group, this meant doubling or quadrupling their dose frequency for a month, from every one to two weeks to twice a week. The good news to come from this trial is that the rescue treatments work just as well as the original treatments, both for the placebo group and those on maintenance therapy. What that tells us is that tolerance did not appear to be an issue, 
or at least not a big enough issue to matter in the context of this study. Otherwise, we'd expect the second and the third inductions to have a fading effect. Now, this doesn't prove that tolerance is not an issue. It could still be that if ketamine is given long enough or at higher or more frequent dosages, rescues stop working or the patients start to require more and more rescues and can't back down to the maintenance doses. Those of us who have seen patients after decades of benzodiazepine treatment are probably familiar with this kind of scenario, and it will take many more years to figure out if ketamine and esketamine are prone to that same pitfall. But does anything else sustain ketamine's benefits besides more of the same? Many medications have been tried without success, including lithium and meds that work through the same mechanism as ketamine, glutamatergic agents like cycloserine, lamotrigine, and riuzole. But one treatment has sustained ketamine's benefits, and that gets to our next question. Our last and final question six, should ketamine be delivered as part of a psychotherapy program? The answer here is a tentative yes, if you want the benefits to last. We can only find two randomized controlled trials that sustained ketamine or esketamine's benefits other than maintenance with more of the same, and both of them involved psychotherapeutic techniques. The first was a trial by Sam Wilkinson and colleagues at Yale that tacked on 12 sessions of traditional CBT compared to treatment as usual after a successful course of ketamine in treatment-resistant depression. This was a small study, 42 patients, and it was only marginally positive. For most of the study, there was no difference on the primary outcome measure, the clinician-rated mattress scale. It was only in the last three weeks that a difference emerged, which is at least what we would expect from a treatment with known benefits like CBT. Dr. Wilkinson speculates that ketamine brings about a state of neuroplasticity that CBT can capitalize on, making cognitions less stubborn and more amenable to change. But besides that theory, the CBT in this study was pretty traditional, and it did not resemble what is done in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies like we see with psilocybin. Those therapies involve preparatory sessions before the psychedelic med, support during the medication delivery, and integration sessions that start one to two days after the dosing where the patient integrates the new awareness that they gained during the psychedelic trip. And I guess that gets into a whole other question, which is whether ketamine is a psychedelic. Briefly, most research reports we've read think that it is, but the debate still goes on. The next study took a very different approach, delivering subliminal messages during the ketamine treatment to change people's cognitions. Although it's a psychological intervention, it did not involve interaction with a therapist. Instead, the patient spent 15 to 20 minutes twice a day with a computer program that delivered positive messages paired with pictures or words about themselves for four days after the ketamine infusion. So they would see a picture of themselves while the words sweet or attractive flashed both subliminally 
below the level of conscious detection and consciously. After a month, there was a small benefit for those who used the real positive association program as opposed to the fake one, along with the ketamine. When I first read this paper, I was excited about the result, but now I have some reservations. The benefit was only seen four weeks after the treatment, not at two weeks, and it was a small difference. What if it was just a random flux that they were detecting there? I mean, if this four-day association training worked, wouldn't you expect to see a difference early on rather than delayed four weeks? Recently, Dr. Ecofried and colleagues at Leiden University in the Netherlands have done some digging, and their results suggest that this study might have been no more than random noise. They went back to the clinical trial registration, and, lo and behold, the original primary outcome was the depression rating at two weeks, not four weeks. In the study, they seem to have changed it to four weeks where it just happened to be positive. This is why pre-registration of trials is so important, and you can check them at clinicaltrials.gov. Registering the trial's primary outcome, their target goal, beforehand prevents researchers from moving the goalposts after the results are in. We're used to seeing that kind of problem in industry-sponsored trials. But why would they do that in a psychotherapy study? The positive association software is under patent, and the first author of the paper is named as an inventor on the patent. Now, in fairness, the study authors have not responded to Dr. Freed's letter yet, and I'll keep everyone posted if they do. I guess I should also disclose that I, too, have a conflict in this area. How so? When I was 12, I created software that would flash subliminal messages on those old IBM PC computers. It was for the science fair. The computer would draw pictures and flash words like carrot at a speed faster than conscious perception. Then I'd ask my subjects, basically anyone who came over to our house, to name the first vegetable that came into their mind while watching the computer screen. And you know what? People who got the carrot subliminal message tended to name carrot as the first vegetable that came to their mind. Well, software patents only last 20 years, and that was what? 1986. So I think your conflict is long expired. The bottom line, we'd like to think that psychotherapy extends the benefits of ketamine. But so far, the area is far too understudied, and the meager results are not too inspiring. But any clinician worth their salt will do more than administer a rating scale after completing ketamine, or after giving an antidepressant for that matter. These are people's lives we're dealing with, not just their symptoms. And we need to help them translate those early sprouts of recovery into meaningful changes in their lives. Whether you call that psychotherapy or not, it's just good practice. And now for the study of the day. It's three studies, a triple feature on weight gain on lithium. I'll gain weight is one of the most common fears I hear spoken when I recommend lithium to a patient. But 10 years ago, I noticed a meta-analysis that showed the opposite. Weight loss 
in short-term placebo-controlled trials of lithium. And that got me thinking, maybe this problem is rarer than we think. Last year, another meta-analysis confirmed that. This one was broader, looking at both long- and short-term trials, 29 in all, and they found no significant weight gain on lithium compared to placebo. Okay, I get it. I might be losing some people at this point to disbelief. I mean, don't we see weight gain in patients on lithium at least a little through water retention? Well, this analysis did find a slight trend toward weight gain on lithium. It just wasn't enough to reach statistical significance. So on average, there is little or no weight gain on lithium. But what if there are rare cases where people gain a lot of weight that doesn't get caught up in this data? The next study, which came out last month, suggests the answer there is no. This study combed through 30 years of data from a drug safety database that collects reports of severe side effects on psych meds from hospitals in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. There were 527 reports of severe weight gain on psychotropics, and they used lamotrigine as the comparator because that mood stabilizer doesn't cause any weight gain. In fact, there's a study from a weight loss clinic that used lamotrigine successfully. Patients appreciate hearing that. As with last year's study, this one found a slight trend for weight gain on lithium of the severe type, but it was not statistically different than lamotrigine. So again, a trend that didn't reach significance. And the weight gain on lithium was much less than reports of severe weight gain on other mood stabilizers. So there we have it. Three studies that call to question a popular belief about lithium. Still convinced that it causes weight gain? Consider this. Emil Kreplin found high rates of weight gain in his bipolar patients before the age of pharmacotherapy. By middle age, most of them had developed the apple shape characteristic of metabolic syndrome, which is known to happen in bipolar disorder independent of meds. The bottom line, tell your patients that weight gain is very rare on lithium, and some even lose weight on it because untreated mood disorders mess with metabolism. Lithium is likely going to make them thirsty, and they can prevent weight gain by drinking lots of water avoiding caloric beverages and diet drinks because diet drinks cause weight gain indirectly. Staying on top of thyroid will also keep weight gain at bay. Stay up on the latest research through Dr. Aiken's social media feed, The Daily Psych. Search for Chris Aiken MD on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Threads. Earn CME for this podcast through the link in the show notes or subscribe online for all our content and get $30 off with the promo code podcast. Thank you for helping us stay free of commercial support. 